For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. I think we can all agree the current political moment is fraught. But how does it compare to the other fraught political moments in history? It felt for a time in part of that decade like everything was falling apart. Young people against old people, anti-war violence, peace movement. I'm former U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara. And this week, presidential historian Doris Kearns Goodwin joins me on my podcast, Stay Tuned with Preet. We talk about difficult times in America's history and how its people overcame them. The episode is out now. Search and follow Stay Tuned with Preet wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, I want to tell you quickly about uh, one of our sponsors, which is Masterclass. And here's the deal with Masterclass. It's classes online taught by uh, masters, taught by people who are at the absolute top of their field uh, Dustin Hoffman will teach you acting. Serena Williams will teach you tennis. Coming soon, they got Christina Aguilera teaching you singing. Annie Leibovitz teaching photography. Usher is going to teach performance. But there's also a writer on there, James Patterson. And you know James Patterson because James Patterson's last 19 books have been bestsellers. In this masterclass, which costs just 90 bucks, you get his whole process. Everything from outlining to marketing your book. So go check it out. Go to masterclass.com slash longform. That's masterclass.com slash longform. And uh, you'll, uh, you'll enjoy it. Okay, here's the show. Hello. Welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with my co-hosts, Aaron Lammer, Evan Ratliff. Gentlemen, hello. Hey. Hey, it's good to be here with you. Yeah. It's really nice to be here with you guys. Yeah, that's how yeah. I feel. Um, uh, who's this on the a, show? This is an active day. I believe two episodes were, were taped today. So it's a big day in the podcast. Huge day. Huge day. Huge day. Um, I guess this week is Jasmine Hughes. Jasmine is a uh, associate editor at the New York Times Magazine. Before that, she was at the Hairpin. She's also a uh, essayist. She writes essays. They're funny. She writes uh, things on Twitter that are funny. <laughs> she makes me laugh because she's funny. And so I had her on because uh, she's funny. Wow. And and uh, brilliant and very interesting person. She's a super interesting person. She's uh, she's very young and she's been very successful in uh, her short time in the media world, and uh, she had a lot to say about both those things. What about sponsors this week? Well, of course, there's MailChimp. Over 8 million businesses rely on it for their email newsletter needs. If yours does not, I don't know why you've made that decision. I uh, suggest you amend it. If you are already using MailChimp, you know how easy to use, yet so powerful it really can be. Uh, Max and I use it for long form. Evan uses it for the Atavist. True. Uh, probably uh, almost every guest who is part of a major publication who's been on the show, that publication uses MailChimp. Let's do this, MailChimp. Now here's Max with Jasmine Hughes. Jasmine Hughes. Max Lansky. 
Jasmine Hughes. Jasmine Hughes, it's very nice to have you here. Thank you. I'm enthused about your presence. I am very excited and sweaty. <laughs> it's gonna, it's uh, warm in here now, and uh, it's only going to get warmer. And I'm on the Longform Podcast. You were on the Longform Podcast. I'm very excited, which makes me very, very sweaty. <laughs> My first day at the New York Times is schwitzing. That's not the only uh, bodily That's fluid not... <laughs> story from your first day at the from New York Times. my first day at the Times. Let's jump right into my menstrual history, Max. Let's, Let's just get there. I've been praying is, that you asked me this. We have set a new record for uh, <laughs> quickest time to menstrual history on the Longport Podcast. Okay, so now it's like a, a well-trod story. But on my first day at the New York Times, after going off of birth control 21 days prior, I got the worst period of my life, and I bled through my pants onto a white chair during my orientation. <laughs> And then the worst part is that I had to come back the next day. Um, so I was in orientation and I was learning about like corporate benefits and I could feel it. You know, sometimes when you're a woman, you know, like a good melon. And I knew that like there was just blood everywhere. So I, I very calmly excused myself and went to the bathroom, not before sneaking a peek of the um, of like the fucking Jackson Pollock painting that I'd left on my seat and then wow. I did something really smart and something I'm really proud of, which is that I somehow cleaned it up with my butt. And, yeah. And Dean Bacay didn't know. That's the best, right? I just don't want Dean to find out. But Dean knows now because you wrote about it. And then I wrote about it for the world. <laughs> um, so maybe. <sighs> okay. Uh, I'm just going to – that story brings up a lot of emotions in me. I feel uh, – Do you have a period story that you want to share too? It's like a melon. It's like a good melon. It's like a good melon. <laughs> no, I don't have a good period story for you. That I just like why like hearing you tell that story is like watching an episode of like Curb Your Enthusiasm. I just like I, I like I hurt inside. First of all, that story is hilarious. Thank you. Second of all, it is um, brave. It's a brave thing to write about. I would say Mo maybe most people's instincts would be to like uh, never talk about that. Keep yeah. keep that one to themselves. I'm interested in that that thing that you do which is take something like that and write about it. But I think maybe we could just start one step back, which is if you wouldn't mind um, just defining uh, what imposter syndrome is for our listeners. So imposter syndrome is a state in which a high achieving or just like a regular achieving person has a lot of difficulty in um, accepting their achievements. So generally they talk it up to luck or some sort of deceit or basically just feel like a fraud the entire time. Did you feel like a fraud on your first day at the New York Times? No, I felt bloody on my first day <laughs> at the New York Times. Um, I felt like a fraud ever since the New York Times, you know, the entire entity got together, um, emailed me and asked me to apply to the job. They asked me to apply. I started working at the Times in April of this year. And they emailed me in January, because that's how long it fucking takes to like get a job there. And um, the entire time I thought it was like a fun joke that I was like, here's little me like applying for this job, la 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 la. I mean, to be, be totally honest and like sort of shitty about it, I thought it was total tokenism and that they wanted to talk to me because I was like a young, cool black person. And at some point they were going to pull the rug out beneath me and say like, you're not what we're looking for. And then, I don't know, I'd have a fun story for my grandkids. <laughs> I almost got a job this one time. But that wasn't what it was. But that's not what happened. And then I got the job, and then I was really scared. What were you scared of? 
Ugh, everything. At the time, I was working at this lovely website called The Hairpin. And my immediate reaction was, I don't want to leave The Hairpin. And then it was sort of like, oh, fuck, I think I have to do this. And then it was immediately, I am not smart enough to do this. <laughs> so I had like two weeks between when I accepted and when I started. And I kept like hoping that I would wake up with like a higher IQ and like a degree from Harvard. Like all since you'd been offered the job, you would just be the person who would have gotten the job. Right. Like some at some point I was just expecting that transformation to land. And then I started and I was totally myself. I was like extra myself. I had enough of myself to go around <laughs> and leave behind on a chair. I think part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about the imposter syndrome thing, you've written about it a bunch. And it's interesting. I was looking at the hairpin uh, earlier and uh, your story on imposter syndrome is like the number two story still on the website. It's a thing that connects with people. You have been in situations that you maybe shouldn't have been in for a very long time. You skipped yeah. two grades. I maybe skipped two grades. I graduated two years early. That's accurate. I graduated from college when I was 20 because I graduated from high school when I was 16 because I was homeschooled, which explains a lot. <laughs> I'm still recovering. Um, I was homeschooled until I was in fifth grade and I was eight turning nine and they just like let me into public school. So since I was in the fifth grade, I've just sort of been in a situation in which I didn't feel totally prepared. Did you have imposter syndrome when you were in high school and college? When I was in high school and I was in college, I thought I was hot shit. I thought I was super cool and nobody could tell me anything. And um, like to paint the picture, I was like 75 pounds. I had glasses and braces and like <laughs> always dressed like I was prepared for a flood, which means like my my jeans were always like way above my ankles and like not in a cool way. <laughs> But I always had boyfriends, and I always had a squad of, like, two slightly nerdier girls who just followed me around. To make sure that you were uh, you were insulated. To make sure that I had a pad or a tampon with me <laughs> whenever I needed one. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to have to fall into a lot of menstrual traps. Here we go. In this conversation in my notes. Let's go. Um, no, in fifth grade, I remember telling my best friend to tie my shoes for me. She listened to me, and that was the first time I was like, <laughs> I might have something here. I don't know what it is, like power and influence and also just like shittiness and um, friends with no backbone. But it was, a, it was a turning point for me. We have a lot of young people who listen to the show and I would be interested in what your advice is for overcoming that imposter syndrome. So would I because I would apply it to myself. I don't have any advice. I'm the oldest of five girls so I always tell people what to do but I never know what I'm talking about but I say it in such a way that it's just like hmm, that sounds like it makes a lot of sense and it sounds so stupid because this is what everyone has ever told me um, who I look up to and I'm like oh you possibly can't have imposter syndrome Ta-Nehisi Coates you're Ta-Nehisi Coates you just have to deal with it like it's not easy so alright when I say that in order to get over imposter syndrome you have to deal with it like I realize that it takes time like, now that I've been at the Times for six months, I can sort of say, like, I am dealing with it. When I was at the Times for two months, I was going to therapy for the first time in, in like, six months. I love therapy because I love to talk about myself. And I was, like, crying in the bathroom a lot. Why? Because I felt so dumb. I felt, like, not even stupid. I felt totally inept. Like, everyone had made a poor choice in bringing me there, myself included. You felt inept in the work? It's weird. So... 
like everyone at the New York Times, unsurprisingly, is at the top of their game and has had like internships at Harper's and like worked at Rolling Stone when it was Rolling Stone and worked at the Village Voice when it was the Village Voice and is just like effortlessly smart and brilliant and attractive. (laughs) But you Um, know some of them are crying in the bathroom, right? But it's so hard to believe when like, like, okay, you can cry in the bathroom and then you come back and do your work. And it's a lot different when your work is like, not to denigrate tweets because I love Twitter, but when you come back from the bathroom crying and you work on like crafting some tweets versus when you come back and work on a cover story, those story editors or whatever editors who were crying in the bathroom, like no one would have given them their jobs if they weren't capable, which I know applies to me too, but it was myself. So I got it all fucked up. At least I know, with the help of psychotherapy. <laughs> you starting to get some confidence? No. But what I am starting to do is, like, feel more comfortable in saying, hey, I'm really uncomfortable. Because before it was almost definitely, it was embarrassing. There, were, there weren't so many people I could talk to about it, because I didn't know a lot of people at the time very well. So now I have these support systems in place where I can go to, like, one of my coworkers and talk to them about something, and we'll have a conversation and with my friends, too, it's getting better. But it's, like, sort of fucking embarrassing when you're 23 years old and your biggest problem in the world is, like, you have a job at the New York Times. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so this is why I carry around so much, like, guilt and, I don't know, and stress and whatever about my job. Because it's, like, what do I have to complain about? And yet... It's not that I it's not that I complain about the work. I just like I feel so undeserving all the time. Not even just of this job, but of like a lot of the opportunities I've been afforded. And I mean, now I'm getting to the point where I can say, Jasmine, you work very hard. And like maybe you deserve like 25% of the things that you have done. <laughs> and one day you'll be 26% and one day I'll be like 50. But I don't like I don't think I'll ever get to the point where I'm like where I totally believe in myself and think that I deserve everything I have, which is good because then you get comfortable and then you get lazy and then you're just like a dude-eater. Are there role models for people who have gotten over like that 50% threshold but like keep kicking ass? Uh, No one that I know. Maybe Jenna Weiss-Berman. She's going to take that out. (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Jenna Weiss-Berman knows that she's hot shit and she is hot shit. Yeah, she might also leave that in. (laughs) I hope she does. I don't care what she does. I feel like you just talked me back into imposter syndrome. Like, I feel yeah. like like um, you have written about this thing really kind of eloquently and beautifully. And it seems like it's still very, very present for you. So the answer is basically it just doesn't go away. No, I don't think it ever goes away. And a lot of people have told me that. And it's really frustrating to hear. You hope that like one day when you're the fucking editor-in-chief of blah, 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 that you'll wake up and be like, okay, I deserve my job. But so far, I haven't met anyone who's told me they feel that way. But I will say I don't talk to white men a lot. <laughs> I, I don't feel that way. You don't feel that way? No. Okay. No, I mean, like I, I part of the reason I'm so interested in it, like uh, I, if you listen to the show at all, it's very clear that I feel that way all the time. And I have no, I'm completely incapable of not saying it out loud. <laughs> you know how much I listen to this show. Yeah, I mean, like, so much of imposter syndrome focuses on, like, how can I feel okay while I'm still 
in the process of making it. Like when I'm in my first entry-level job, when I'm trying to get my first clips, like my first bylines, yada, yada. But no one, or at least not to me, no one really publicly talks about like how to fight imposter syndrome when you've already made it. And like all signals point to like, you should be super happy and you should feel great all the time. And you're still just like, I don't think I should be here. This is a terrible mistake. I'm always really reluctant to talk about this because I don't want anyone to think I'm on this pity tour. Like, come to me and tell me how great I am. Like, I, I'm great. And I know I'm great. But there are just certain things that I cannot overcome. And the reason why I write about them is because I know other people are feeling this way, too. So I don't write that often. But every time I write about imposter syndrome, which has been a grand total of two times, people email me. And I always feel so hugely flattered part of the reason that uh it resonates with people too is like the last time you wrote about it was this thing for cosmo yeah where you dressed up like a cookie from empire cookie lion you went to the new york times every day for a week wearing like leopard skin pants and white jumpsuits and looking fantastic thank you looking great i did I did. I meant to find out the difference between leopard print and cheetah print that week, and I never did. Do you know the difference? Definitely not. They're very close. Yeah. And I'm sure it's something. That piece was like, it was about this feeling, right? Which I I know that you are particularly young for your job. Mm-hmm. But my assumption is that most people on their first day or their first week or their first month or the first year at the New York Times feel pretty weird, unless they're kind of an asshole. Unless they're an asshole. And you I'm know, sure there there are assholes. There are definitely some there. people who are like, hell yeah, I'm here, obviously. But most people probably go through that. And mm-hmm. part of the thing I'm interested in about you is maybe they go talk to their therapist about it, or maybe they like write about it in their journal. Maybe they talk to their partner about it, their friends. You, Jasmine Hughes, write an essay for Cosmo where you dress up like Cookie. Yeah. Which is funny as shit. But also, like, involves putting yourself out there in a way that I find really interesting. That's not a question, but it was a lot of, like, cool compliments to me, so thank you. Do you want a question? No, 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 no. I'm going to respond to it. I did all of those things. I talked to my partner. I talked to my therapist a lot. I talked to my friends. But I don't find a lot of value in keeping things private. So I was on a panel earlier this week talking about feminism and media, and we had to answer the question of whether or not we were feminist writers. And I said I was mostly because I don't write that much and because I wanted to make like a cheap joke, but also because like when I do write, my my first MO is to make people laugh. Like that's super obvious. And my second MO is to make women feel better and specifically women. I've been blessed with no chill, so I'm going to use that for the best. And if I bleed all over myself, then I'm going to tell people about it because the person who bleeds all over herself and she's super embarrassed is going to feel slightly better the next time it happens. Why don't you write more? That's a really good question. I have not ever written anything for the New York Times, which is weird. Because it's scary, right? So when I took the job at the Times, I, I had been writing at the Hairpin every day. And I told myself that I wanted to, be a, wanted to focus on being a better editor. And I was going to stop writing because blogging takes up so much of your brain. I wanted to be a better editor because I didn't think I was a great editor, and I still am not sure if I'm a good editor, and that's what I'm working towards. I don't feel like you really answered the question. I, I'm not really answering the question. Why don't I write more? I've got four 
pieces down here to talk to you about. Okay. They're all like personal essays, I'd say. Yeah. That you've written over the last maybe year and a half. Probably. I guess I'm wondering why at 23 you decided to take a job where you're working on other people's writing rather than spending your days working on your own. I mean, I think Jill Abramson used to say, like, the Times is always the prettiest girl in the room. So it's sort of, it very much matters what you want to do, but in a way you're sort of just, like, so shell-shocked that, like, the homecoming king is looking at you. And you're just like, I'll do anything you want. I don't know if I want to be a writer. I guess that's the real question. So that's, Yeah, that's what I'm asking. I write when I feel like I have something to write about. I don't think I would be a good, like, daily grind writer. I write when something, like, dumb happens to me. That sounds kind of luxurious. Yeah. But it also sounds a little safe to me. Mm. It's a little safe to only write when you're sure it's going to kill. Well, when I wrote out the hairpin, I wrote every day. That's a different kind of writing. You denigrating blogging right now, the highest form of American <laughs> journalism. Um, yeah, you're totally right. I'm not a very fast writer, which means I wouldn't be good at writing more often. And... I know. So far, I've been lucky to only have to write about things that really interest me. Turns out, I don't like a lot of things. So, that's really it. I don't know if I could, like, write at the Times every day. Hi, a quick word from our sponsor, The Great Courses. If you've been listening to the show, then uh, you have some sense of what The Great Courses is. It's like a, how can I describe it? It's like an um, online wonderland of learning. There's thousands of courses taught by award-winning college professors, and you can watch them anywhere you want. TV, laptop, phone, whatever. It all works. The individual courses, they cost like $200 to $300 a piece, but the great courses, they've got a new product out. It's called The Great Courses Plus, and what it lets you do is take an unlimited number of courses for one low monthly price. Thousands and thousands of courses you can take it and just take that knowledge, put it right in your brain. History, science, photography, cooking, whatever you're interested in, they've got a course on the topic, and you can take as many of them as you want with The Great Courses Plus. And here's the thing. If you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash longform, your first month will be free. Unlimited knowledge for free. Pretty good deal. Thanks very much to them for sponsoring the show. Let's get back to Jasmine. So when you think like way down the line, deep, deep into the future, right? when you're 30. When I'm 30 whew. and I look like you. <laughs> I'm way older than that. <laughs> what do you imagine yourself doing? Do you, do you see yourself editing? Do you see yourself like uh, running for national office? Do you see yourself writing every day in like a, in a, in a room by yourself? I knew you were going to ask me this question and I still don't have an answer. I think I want to be a story editor. I don't I don't even want to say that. I don't know. I mean, part of me still wants to be at the New York Times because that would be dope, right? Part of me wants to be at the New York Times when I'm 30 because it would mean that I never got fired for, like, tweeting a dumb thing, which seems possible every single day. Part of me wants to be an editor. Part of me wants to, I don't know, have, like, written a book and realize that writing dumb stuff is my calling and I can do it really easily and really quickly and I would just do it and then part of me wants to do something like totally out of left field which is not that far out of left field and like write for TV or something that being said I have a really long time before I turn 30 
<laughs> you could probably do all those things. You could probably do all those things. Do you think of yourself as an ambitious person? Yes. Yeah. I'm an ambitious person, and I think it is to the detriment of my personal life. A little bit. I'm also a really fast texter, so it's like easy to keep in touch with people. <laughs> I think the first thing of yours that I read that uh, like made me sit up in my chair was you wrote this piece for TNR about like uh, white people making white people jokes. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the bane of my existence. White people making white people jokes. White people. Full stop. <laughs> uh, it was great and it was really funny and uh, it was smart and you know white people should feel shame and about everything about all, all the time about everything and uh, uh, they did plus it was at TNR so it was like you were like uh, shaming white people in their own pages in their own house <laughs> yeah you were, <laughs> you uh, you walked into the foyer yeah and shamed them in their own house bam tell me about that piece and where it came from and also like what the reaction to it was and what it was like for you to put that out there. I mean, it was, it was, uh, like I said, it was funny, but it was fucking strong. Thank you. That piece came to me from James Burnett, who's not at TNR anymore. Yeah, at this point, I'd written A Shouts and Murmurs, so I was like, I'm an authority on comedy and humor. Ask me anything. <laughs> Reading back to your stuff, I got to just tell you, there's like this brief period right around then when you, uh, you're describing yourself as a humorist. I know, right? Because I wrote that one Shouts and Murmurs. It was a fucking lie. <laughs> That's also just uh, not. A, That's like not a thing. It's not. It's not cool either. It's not a, like a cool. I don't know. I thought it was cool in my youth. Sure, I've, I've grown. Sure, so much back since then. back in twenty twenty fourteen. Back in January when that piece came out. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So the piece was. Uh, so yeah, James and I went to coffee and we were just talking about things that are noticed on the internet. And as I am always irked by white people, love them as I do. I just noticed this like cool new trend where. White people were making fun of themselves, which is fine, but they were doing it under the guise of, like, sort of racial unity, of trying to show people of color that, like, white people are bad and I know it, but, like, I'm one of the cool ones. Like, I'm not a regular white person, I'm a cool white person. And it blew my mind. So I wrote this thing just being like, if you are a white person and you want to make fun of white people, like, that's fine, but you're not helping anyone. You're actually just reinforcing the privileges that you have that people of color already know about and we feel shitty about. So, like, don't. I appreciated it that part of your, like, critique was uh, you're ruining the joke. Mm-hmm. Like, the joke's not funny. It's not funny when, like, Max Linsky, if you were to say something, like, okay, here's your thing. I'm a hilarious person. <laughs> so if I were to say something about your shirt right now, um, so it looks like something that was used to scrub the floors of the worst L.L. Bean in America. <laughs> I can say that, and that's fine. But if you start talking about how, like, oh, I'm a white guy, and I love L.L. Bean and fucking Starbucks and Louis C.K., I'd be like, not only are you boring and unrefined, (laughs) but, like, that's not doing anything for me. This is a nice shirt. It's an okay shirt. (laughs) So I had um, only written one thing on the subject of race before, which is this, like, Jezebel piece about um, being a black person, being a black woman and having a white boyfriend and how like that was still a big deal to people. That was like the first big piece you wrote. That was the first thing I ever wrote. But it was on Jezebel and there's a certain community there which and they were largely positive which was nice. TNR opened me up to like angry white adults which don't always read Jezebel. People are really mean and I got really scared. Like um, 
I got some Facebook messages from women who like from a woman who her profile picture was like of her two grandchildren. And what I could see was that she was like this sort of innocuous seeming like docile old woman living in the South, but like sent me the most explicative laden Facebook message that like told me to go back to Africa. And I was like, what are you talking about? Someone called me a racist N word. And I was like, that's like inherent. That's not a thing. <laughs> right. Like that can't be a thing. Is there something like uh, worse than oxymoron? Than like a bad oxymoron? <laughs> yeah. And that was really rough. But I really like the piece and I still stand by it. Of course you do. Yeah. One thing I'm interested in is w- w- what your feelings are on the like uh, personal essay economy. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's a uh, occasionally like derided kind of uh, writing on the internet. Yeah, totally. And also, it's historically a thing that people don't really pay for. Yeah. And so I'm interested as someone who has predominantly written that kind of stuff and also commissioned a bunch of stuff that maybe didn't get paid for that much at the hairpin. Do you think that's bullshit? Like, do you think that people getting paid nothing for it is bullshit? Do you think that the knock that it is kind of like easy or cheap is bullshit? I think it's bullshit when people denigrate the personal or sort of like simplify the personal essay economy and make it this like tremendous sob story in which these like horrible hardline editors who are obsessed with clicks and obsessed with dicks are like, attacking these poor writers and like forcing them to mine their personal lives for these like incredible like clickbaity pieces of gold because that's not what happens as a person who writes personal essays all the time like more often than not people do it because they want to it's like it's so simple i feel stupid saying it but they have a story to tell not because they want 300 dollars you know so it's been a conversation on the internet a lot and it's sort of maddening because like number one just because there's a ton of something doesn't mean it's bad it just means there's more bad stuff out there which is true of like war journalism and political coverage like just shit is bad sometimes and secondly I just like where does the power really lie like I've never been in a situation in which like I've encountered a traffic hungry editor who's like gone into you know like some sort of message board in which people are trying to like recover from something and been like you have a story to tell bring it to blah 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 website and i'll give you so much exposure you know that's not how it happens it happens when people pitch us at least in my time being an editor very rarely have i told people like you should write that which means i should probably be a better editor (laughs) so at least when i worked at the hairpin which is a site for ladies a site for weird girls is i think how it was sold We'd get, like, 80 pitches a week. And you mostly, like, commission stories out of those pitches. Yeah. When I was at the hairpin, two people worked at the hairpin. So we'd do some light blogging and we'd write the occasional longer thing when we felt like it. But we were, like, going through submissions and editing, like, six to 12 pieces at a time and taking care of tweets and making sure people were being paid. Like, we weren't doing the bulk of the work there. All of that work came from freelancers, many of whom like blind pitched us just because they were like, here is a venue in which I can tell the story I want to tell. And then like, that's how that's how it works, right? Sure. Like, I don't have we didn't have a stable of like really sad girls who, I don't know, had a belly button infection and then want to write about it. Was it hard for you to not pay people very much money to tell those stories? Well, what are we defining as very much money? 
That's a good question. Well, when I was at the hairpin and things changed, we paid people a sliding scale. Like if you did something really huge, if you did like a deep investigative story, which not a ton of people did, to be honest, we would probably give you somewhere in the 200 to $300 range. Most of our writers got between like $125 to $200 for a post. Obviously, that varied depending on like what the piece was. Yeah, that's not that much money. That's not that much money, no. But I also don't think that people write for the hairpin and they use it to support themselves. What do you guys pay at the Times? 500 500 for a piece, no matter what the like length of For a web is. piece, yeah, yeah, 500 No matter what it is. Across the board. So it's one thing, yeah, like 125 bucks isn't a ton of money, but it's one thing to get 125 bucks from like a small niche publication that you know is run by two people and is sort of like strung together with sticks in the most beautiful way. And it's another thing to get paid 125 bucks from like a huge media corporation. All right, I got some other things I want to talk to you about. Okay. Okay, we've talked a little bit about um, uh, your youth and your, uh, your courage, your verve. We've talked a little bit about the writing you do. And uh, we've talked a little bit about the editing that you do. But you have this other thing. You started this site called Writers of Color, which uh, is a basically a database of writers of color, which I think is there to sort of serve as this constant reminder to editors that there are writers of color and they cannot make the excuse that there are not people to assign these stories to. Right, because I just gave you 700 of them. Once you put that site up and you did it with some friends and, and uh, you were telling me earlier that it's uh, you don't feel like you have the time to keep it going, but tell me about when you guys announced that thing and you started started asking for people to come to you. Like, Were you surprised by the response? Was it heartening? It was both heartening and sort of heartbreaking that like a total goober like myself could be at brunch and come up with this seemingly like hugely obvious idea and have it fill such an obvious hole in the industry like it was really really great and we immediately got a flood of submissions um and of like a lot of interest from editors and stuff too but it in some ways made me really sad that like it took me i don't think that's a real a hugely novel idea to like have a list of writers of color or to even just to like try to get more writers of color in your newsroom and in your publication. But for some reason, in 2015, in Obama's America, it's still like an, oh yeah, like, why didn't I think of that to so many people? Did it make you optimistic about the sort of like racial dynamics in media changing? Did, uh, do you feel more optimistic about that than you did before? I feel only slightly optimistic because it's really great. Right, then all these writers of color will hopefully start getting these assignments and jobs because of the database that my friends and I created. But I want more than that. It's really easy to take a group of marginalized people and to go back to the nightmare of the personal essay economy, to like use them for their experiences and then like pump up your site with all these like quote unquote diverse stories and then you sort of just throw them away. So while I think it's really great that like through the Writers of Color site, people have gotten to write these personal essays or write takes on some of like the horrifying racialized violence that's been going on. I, I want those people to write about like financial stories and write about politics and write about the election and not just write about like what they are presumed to know because of the way they look. 
I'm interested in how you think this changes from the, um, from the, on a practical level, right? So part of what I think people responded to with that Writers of Color site was exactly what you're saying. Like it was just a simple idea. It's kind of surprising it wasn't there before. Yeah. And it's actually helpful. It's both like like a kind of like a monument, but also something that has like a functional purpose. There were there were a couple of sites that were doing the same purpose, but the fact that so many people reacted to it, like I was very proud, but I also felt really stupid. Partially because I like didn't think about it before because I've been complaining about this for a long time. Sure. Okay. But like, so it, it, it's got this functional purpose and it's got this like uh, symbolic purpose. Yeah. In a functional way, how does this change? Personally, I try not to assign stuff to white dudes because okay, when I had the idea to make the site, I was still working at the hairpin. So again, like most of the stuff coming in was through submissions, and most of those submissions were from white women. But Haley and I worked very hard to like reach out to people of color we got a bunch of people of color writing it was super great then we created the site and i was like so angry at all of like the evil lazy editors who weren't like looking out for people beyond this like the circle of writers that they already knew and then i got a job at the times and you know we're tethered to a news cycle and like the editors above me and myself to some degree like want a certain like a writer with like x number of bylines elsewhere so you can sort of verify their talent and da 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 and i could feel myself like slipping back into like oh well i know that this white dude has written this thing for like this predominantly white publication why don't i just call him and then having this project right in front of my face is like no dummy (laughs) like this is the thing that you were trying to fight against it's just very easy like especially in new york media which is so like lovely and also really fucking evil and insidious to just like call on the people you know so at least for me and being an editor it's pushed me having the writers of color project has pushed me to like just not rely on the people that i know how do you feel about the fact that your boss at the new york times magazine is a white dude and his boss is a white dude and his boss is a white dude but then his boss is a black dude true (laughs) this is the first time i've ever worked for a man (laughs) which I feel very, like, sort of blessed to say, like, I've gone this far. Like, it's a little challenging, right? To, like, on the weekend, I'll, like, hang out with all my black girlfriends, and we'll talk about, you know, we'll plan, because it's actually going to happen, like, how we're going to take over and be in charge of everything in the near future, and then go into the office, and it's just, like, fucking, like, button-down shirts and cords and loafers and, like, five o'clock shadow, and it's, and it's the New York Times. And it's not disheartening. What it is is just motivating. I mean, what's great about the people that, like, the white dudes at the Times, I think they're all lovely. And the white dudes at the All were mostly lovely. (laughs) And I've been lucky, at least when I've had to work with a bunch of white dudes, I've been working with good white dudes. But even still, I tend to gravitate towards the people who aren't white dudes. And that doesn't have to be a bad thing. Being someone who's as invested in changing this industry as you Uh appear to be Uh working for a very very prominent magazine Uh that is clearly making an effort to try and bring in voices that historically have not been in the magazine and yet it's still like a bunch of white dudes at the top okay so when i got the job and before i started i went away to the rockaways just to like i went by myself for three days just to like clean my head and eat a lot and um, when I was gone, the cover story that Rachel Conziganza 
had written on Toni Morrison came out. And I had like such a bevy of emotions that week. I was like really sad to leave the hairpin. And then I was really excited to work at the New York Times and like call my parents and say that I was working at the New York Times. And then I was super terrified. And then I was like, I'm going to work with all these white people. Like, What's going to happen? And then this like huge fucking beautiful cover story and Toni Morrison comes out written by like one of my favorite black female writers and then I like immediately felt better it wasn't like I had no doubt but it's been I don't know it's been really obvious that like the times is trying to do better and the magazine especially is trying to do better I think what's different now like both at the times and largely in media in general is that the white dudes know that they're white dudes running the place the tiny bit of recognition in some sort of way is hugely optimistic to me once you stop thinking that you're the default and you start thinking yourself, you start labeling yourself in a way that you label other people, that's what insights change. It sounds uh, optimistic. Yeah. So I am optimistic. If a uh, woman of color mm-hmm. called you tomorrow and said, I would love for you to come work on my less prominent magazine mm. and you would have a very similar role, would you do that? No. Because I really like my job and because I've had a lot of jobs and I should stay in one place for a while. And as much as the Times has to give to me, like I have a lot to give to them too and they haven't gotten a lot of it yet and they're paying me a nice amount of money and I'd like to like give it up. All right. How do you feel about where you're at compared to most people your age? Is that a tricky thing? Like most people who are 24 are like, fucking around trying to figure some shit out. Mm -hmm. And you are going to work at the New York Times. Yeah. I feel really guilty about it. On one hand, I feel sort of like, oh, I'm I'm doing a good job. I have two retirement accounts. Like, I'm fucking crushing it right now. But on the other hand, sometimes I get like, I get very intense fears that I'm not doing it right. I don't feel like I have struggled enough in a way and I feel like like I've never had a service job which is sort of like my deepest darkest secret that when people are 24 sometimes they work in service and they work in retail and like that's really great because you know everyone says that you should work a service job because you know how to treat people I've caught myself doing that shitty thing that like that Harvard's kids do and they say I go to school in Cambridge not Tufts just like a school you know sometimes I tell people I work in a magazine and then don't tell them anything else and then they're like which magazine and I'm like, oh, yeah, like the New York Times. Because it also means something. Like everyone, everybody knows what the New York Times is. No, not Harper's. <laughs> when I worked at the hairpin, people would be like, mm, why do you work at like a hair accessory site? <laughs> everyone knows what the New York Times is. So, so then they meet you, they learn that you work at the Times, and then they create this, at least in my brain. Anyway, they create this idea of who you are and who you should be. And again... I'm like just some asshole who like can't spell and barely knows how to read. So I'm 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 always afraid that people are gonna be like, how the fuck did she get a job? Because I already think that. We don't need more people thinking that. So when it comes to being twenty-four, I don't feel twenty-four. I feel like a very sexy thirty-two. <laughs> <laughs> You are a, a person who comes up with good questions. Okay. You had this thing for the hairpin. Oh, yeah. We had this column. We had all these questions. One big question. One big question. Yeah. It's and I was reading through them and it was great. Yeah. 
So now I'm just going to ask you all the questions that in one big question you did not actually answer. Oh, my God. That's most of the questions. All okay. Right. It is most of the questions. Yeah, let's all go. All right, you ready? Yeah. You can take as long or as short as you would like. Uh, question one, what do you want people to say about you when you've left the room? I didn't answer that because I'm of two minds about that. I want people to say that I'm... Um, there's that Zora Neale Hurston anthology. Um, I love myself when I am laughing, but also when I'm looking mean and impressive. And I just want people to think I'm mean and impressive, but I'm such like an effusive overshare. No one's ever going to be afraid of me. So I would love mean and impressive, but like what's more likely is that people were like, she was sort of a bitch, but mostly okay. <laughs> but that's what you want people to say? Oh, that's what I think people say. Um, I think I want people to say... That girl was the funniest person I ever met in my life, and I hope she's okay. <laughs> I think that's what I want. What makes you feel powerful? The Jump Off by Lil' Kim. I've been listening to that a lot. That's like your, your morning power music? When I was dressed as Cookie, I don't walk down the street listening to The Jump Off because Lil' Kim is the baddest bitch around. We're gonna, put, we're gonna put every single one of these Cookie pictures oh my God. on this podcast. <laughs> They're gonna be everywhere. It makes me feel powerful. Um, listening to female rappers, eviscerating dumbasses on the internet, and again, like having, like my Instagram comments are lit right now because teens have all found me and they like read my shit on the Cosmo Snapchat or whatever and they're just like thanking me and I feel not powerful in a scary way, but powerful in sort of just like, and I actually did what I set out to do. Who's the most important person in your life? Me. Is that a terrible answer? No. I didn't hesitate at all. No, no. I'm going to have to talk this one out. Yeah, with, talk it out. With my therapist. You no. should just talk it out right now. So yesterday was my birthday, and I have a lot of a lot of anxiety about like having celebrations because it feels like I have to quantify my friendships, and I always think that everybody hates me, and um, and people don't hate me, and it was like a really nice surprise, and I had a really wonderful time, and I was, and so then I was like like awfully hungover and I was like trying to make a bargain with God at 2 a.m. being like I get out of this hangover I'm gonna be a better person and I realized that I have a lot of really important people who care for me and it sounds really corny but like I didn't know but that being said you always gotta look out for number one because you're just you're just not gonna be like okay this is all like refrigerator magnet rhetoric but you're not gonna be at your best unless you're taking care of yourself. Like, put your oxygen mask on first, you know? That's how I honestly feel. Thank you, Jasmine. Thanks, Mike. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Molly Bain. Thanks to all of them. Thanks so much to Jasmine for uh, taking the time and teaching me how to be better at the internet. It's not going to take, but I appreciate her effort. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, Masterclass, The Great Courses, and of course, our dear friends at MailChimp. We'll see you next week. Run. Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. 
And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Teen Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Teen Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. <laughs> 